here's Johnny. I'll be back. And you will know my name is the Lord. I'm walking here. I'm walking here. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to Box Office Pulp, your one podcast stop for movies, madness, and moxie. On today's episode, we're all going to ugly cry into our microphones for 45 minutes as we think about Michael Rooker and our fathers. We might even say a few things about Marvel Studios' latest film, Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2. Joining me today are my three stalwart co-hosts. I'm having a hell of a time saying co-host, but I'm just going to go with that reading. If there are two types of beings in the universe, there are those who dance and those who are Mike. We happen to have... Mike. You're also ugly on the inside, Cody. It's very true. Next up, we're making some weird shit. Get ready for an 800-foot statue of Pac-Man, Skeletor, and James Lewis. I'm gold. Delightful. And lastly... I'm in beer. He hates hats. I'm in beer? Not anyone, not just himself. I'm in beer. You see someone and think they have a weird head, and that just turns out part of their head is a hat? Uh, that's why you don't like hats? I'm in beer. Oh! And I'm Mary Poppins, y'all. You suddenly remembered. You suddenly remembered. Also, I'm so glad that you did not go with, and here is James, whose poop is famously big. <laughs> Those notoriously large turds. Is that true? We're going to get into the real meat of the podcast now. James, how big would you rate your turds? Like, are, are they I'm out of here. I don't like that. No, Cody, I don't like this anymore. I remember. Well, now I'm out of material. We can't talk turd size. Also, Cody, turn up your games to... Tinge. Uh, oh boy. Hold on. Hold on. <laughs> Are you pulling lovers to create Frankenstein over there? <laughs> I knocked over my speaker. No, you're much, much lower. Sounds like you're across the room. Uh, oh God. How about now? It's exactly the same. Did you unplug something accidentally? Oh, Jesus. Uh. <laughs> Do I have to lead this in now? Please. <laughs> God damn it. We're going to hear sounds of a fire, aren't we? <laughs> no, I accidentally turned up the volume very high on my headset, so that was <laughs> frustrating. Do I sound any better now? Uh, yeah. Okay. You're deaf now, but yeah. I'm deaf. That's... <laughs> <laughs> this is a terrible start. Don't keep any of this part in. We had an okay intro. <laughs> oh, my God. Is this in the spirit of Guardians, though? No. No. <laughs> I mean, people tag, are but they get the job right done. now, but... It's, yes. Let's, okay, let's actually get to the matter at hand here. I'm assuming we all loved Guardians of the Galaxy 2. Is, or do we have any dissenters? Is there anyone who needs to be banished from the show? I, mean, I have no banished. soul. MV, you did not enjoy Guardians 2. Actually, I did. I loved it. Okay, all right. It would be amazing if MB just threw down on Guardians <laughs> of the Galaxy Volume 2. <laughs> I, I have been... this to say about Mantis. I, I have never been disrespected by a film more in my life. This film ruined my life. <laughs> and I just would have been amazed. Like, it would have given us plenty to talk about, but I would have just, like, had my head blown. Well, that's not uh, the case, though, so ignore the alternate reality version of this episode. Wonderful. <sighs> uh, I, I, I actually watched the movie a second time today, uh, and the first time I enjoyed it, hands down, really enjoyed it, but the second time I watched it, it I realized how much I, I just loved the movie. Like, legitimately thought it was everything you could ask for in a big-budget blockbuster movie. Like, there's big fun action. It's funny. It's entertaining. Uh, great soundtrack. It has some things to say. 
It's a little bit emotional. The effects are great. Really, I don't know what more you could ask for for a popcorn flick. Now, when you say it's a little emotional... Uh, and I underplay that. Basically, like, the, the second you get into everything at the end, uh, even the second time around, I just felt like someone was just emotionally assaulting me. It's nonstop. It, it lets up a little bit, actually, and then they get to the Ravager funeral, and it's like, oh, nope, oh, there's the knife again. The movie oh. ends on a close-up of Rocket crying. It does, yes. Yeah, I just want to say, I think it's even underselling it to call it a popcorn film, because as I, I'm not entirely into the camp that this is superior to the original, but I no, feel like I feel like you take home more with this film than the original. While it may not exactly stand shoulder to shoulder with the filmmaking of the first, I feel like there's a a substantial amount of surface here. Like, this movie sticks to your ribs in a way that not only, like, the first one didn't quite, but, like, I can't think of a Marvel movie that stayed with me after watching it this much. I'm of a different camp where it stuck with me, but a lot of Marvel movies have. This one specifically, though, what it, what it, what it gets to is that The first Guardians of the Galaxy, for me, was just kind of a tour around the galaxy as we know it. I mean, literally, it's a tour of the Marvel cosmic space, and it's kind of the introduction of all these characters is the formation of the team. It's how they meet and what their arcs are in that movie from kind of beginning to end, and then they just kind of go off and they set up for their adventures. This is a character piece. This is one, like, almost a singular character piece about the team, not just, okay, this is just the Star-Lord movie. No, this is just the Rocket movie. No, this is just the Gamora movie. This is this is about the Guardians as a singular unit and how they function together or don't function at all. And it's about family in so many different ways that I would say even Ben Diesel would be envious of. <laughs> I'll say, and I'm curious if you felt this as well. Do you feel like this is everything you wanted Avengers 2 to be? This is, I, I kind of feel like what Avengers 2 has promised to us. Yes. Because Whedon made a lot of comments saying that he was going to go smaller and he wanted to go more intimate. And I, I really feel like that's the case here. I mean, we do still have Ego trying to destroy the galaxy and lots of big effect shots and all that kind of stuff. But for all of that... I feel like Gunn really wanted to get more into these characters instead of having, you know, 30,000 spaceships fighting 30,000 other spaceships while there's ground battles and hand-to-hand combat and blah, 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 blah. I think, like, when I think it's almost unfair to say it's not as good as the first movie, even though I do agree with that. That's what I think as well, because they're both very different types of movie. Exactly, yeah. And they kind of step, the quote-unquote step down from the first movie is actually Volume 2's greatest strength. And I appreciate the balls on gun to structure this film more like a 90s indie film. Yeah. It's a pure character exploration of all the characters, of the concept of the team itself as if it was one character, without really any kind of plot. You know, going into it, Everyone's idea was that it's like, oh, Aisha's the villain and the Nego's there and blah, 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 and they have to do some Guardians of the Galaxy shit. This is them just kind of doing stuff until the third act starts, and I, I, and not in like a, a bad, meandering plot kind of way. 
the plot is what the characters are going through and what they're doing and how they're reacting and the themes of the movie are the plots. And then it kind of comes to a head in the third act. I think some people are frustrated because, uh, so. and I mean, I'm just speaking for them. They're not on the show to defend themselves. So I can just make up what they, <laughs> they probably believe in stupid things. Um, <laughs> but I think the Holocaust was real fictional person. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I don't care dummies. what you say. Get your shit together. Uh, I think a lot of people are complaining because uh, for a large portion of the movie, Star-Lord is essentially sidelined. He's not given physical action to do, which makes it seem like he has nothing going on. But he has a very emotional deal going where, you know, he meets his father finally, and he has to figure out how that works for him. So emotionally, he's got so much on his plate, but that doesn't entertain audiences the same way as, like, seeing Peter Quill fly around fighting multidimensional tentacle beasts. Yeah. I will say that actually is kind of my biggest gripe with the movie is that I feel like the the second act indulges a little bit too much in the pace of it in that it, it kind of goes a little too far into more of a slowed down pace because mostly when they go to the actual ego planet and they're actually on there, it feels like an entire other movie is kind of sandwiched in between the first and second acts. Well, there's and, such a big subplot difference between what Rocket and Yondu are doing compared to what the rest of the Guardians are doing. And well, considering they spent so much time in the first movie building these characters up so they have to work together, well, I feel like this movie they spend all their time separate. Really separate, kind of yeah. yeah. Well, I feel like that's an aspect of it, but I also feel like just in comparing it to the first movie, because it's impossible not to do. I mean, it's called Volume 2. Uh, and, like, I do agree that it, they are two completely different films, but the first one had such an immense, like, much more immense sense of scope because... Like I said, it was a tour of the galaxy. It was you right. went to different planets, you went to different systems, you went to all like you saw all this different sort of alien life, and it, it was almost like every scene took place on a new planet. You felt like you were getting a gigantic like cosmic experience. With this, it's much more subdued and much more restrained to focus on the character work, and that was really kind of my only. That was kind of what took it down from the first one because the first one felt so immense and such. Like such a breadth of something, like like it was a Star Wars. This is more like it's almost hard to describe what this is like because I don't think I've seen anything quite like this in terms of like this is just a ballsy movie. This is Woody Allen Star Wars. <laughs> <laughs> See, that's actually kind of my complaint in the first movie, MB. I think it hits too many places, considering it has to introduce all the characters and all these locations. I I, I think I even mentioned this in our original episode for Guardians of the Galaxy. Promotion! Um, it just feels like there's not enough time given to the characters, because they have to have so much they cover and so much world-building. In this one, they can kind of sit back a little bit and go, okay, people understand, by and large, the rules of this world, and we have our characters set up. Let's explore some of their conflicts now. And it allows them to break it down and be like, okay, let's pair these two together, because we can get a lot of emotional mileage on them discussing either their differences or similarities. And to me, that works fantastically. Like, I, I think that's why I love 2 so much. You can't really... Com- it's an apples and oranges thing, like we said, even though it's a volume 2. But I really love the choices they made on this one to try and get more character exploration done. Well, I something I've been reflecting on a lot since seeing it is something I've never really thought about until now, which is every good superhero series follows a basic structure with how the films are laid out, which is the first film introduces us to the hero or team in question, 
and is all about explaining why that thing should exist. And in a good sequel, the second film is saying, okay, you know why this has to exist, but what does that mean for this to exist? Spider-Man 2 did that brilliantly. X-Men 2, Captain America Winter Soldier, all did that expertly. The Dark Knight. The Dark Knight, exactly. Where you see problems with stuff like Iron Man, is like Iron Man 2 just kind of did the Iron Man story a second time. It didn't really go into what Iron Man meant for that world. Avengers Age of Ultron kind of tried to do that and then gave up about halfway through. But Guard, really no other superhero movie that I can think of uh, personifies that philosophy more than this film. Like Guardians of the Galaxy is all about these characters coming together. Volume 2 is about, okay, they're the Guardians of the Galaxy. What does that mean exactly? <laughs> what does Star-Lord leading a group of mercenaries entail? What does Rocket being on a superhero team mean to Rocket? What is Groot? Marketing genius is what it is. Marketing genius. I still yeah. love how, by the way, Baby Groot was a last-minute addition to James <laughs> And that was the key that set everything going for him. I could not get into this Guardians of the Galaxy 2 until I made Groot a baby. Can I just say that I love the, once again, the sheer balls. Balls, my Balls. Thank you. The sheer balls of James Gunn having baby Groot there and having him maybe take up five minutes of screen time. Like, it honestly feels like he doesn't really, like, they... I feel like everyone else wanted the movie to heavily lean on him, and James Gunn said, no, no, that's not why I'm here. Here here he is for a little bit, and here's this little cute scene, but he serves a larger purpose in my narrative. Here are the other characters I actually want to focus on. That's what I'm going to do. And it worked. I feel like that actually really... It enhanced the film. What I, what I feel like is that the Volume 2 utilizes the characters in a way that is so laser-focused compared to the first one. Because I, I think Cody kind of alluded to this when he was talking about his issues with the first one. One of my issues with the first film is that I felt like Star-Lord's arc in the first film, while it was carried by Chris Pratt's performance, I felt like in the script it wasn't really that well-defined because he just kind of is a thief, and then the plot with Ronan happens, and he decides, oh, um... I guess I I guess I have to save the universe now. Way later than anyone else comes to that conclusion, <laughs> even like that. To me, that's kind of jarring and one of the only parts of the movie I don't really like. I, but, I would argue that slightly, and we're going to go on a slight tangent here. So please remember your place. Fight, 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 fight. No, uh, I saw an article talking about this, and uh, it kind of turned me around because originally I would have been on your side, but just talking about Peter's reluctance to really join into most things supposedly tying back into the fact that he loses his mother in that first scene. So he doesn't want a team. He doesn't want any of this stuff. He just wants to get through life and without attachments. So the idea of saving the galaxy doesn't matter to him so much because they're just people he doesn't give a damn about, and he doesn't want to be emotionally hurt by being close to them anymore. It's not the decision to save the galaxy that really bothers me, though. It's the the way that it's actually executed, which is just like a light switch moment, as opposed to a gradual... Yeah, as a gradual build-up. I felt like 
one scene, Peter was still in the I'm I'm out for me and nobody else mode. The very next scene, he was like, okay, I've got to stop Ronan. I feel like that was just kind of poorly done. Whereas with Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2, I feel like Gunn actually like really took a lot of time and said, okay, this is where I want Rocket to be at the beginning of the movie. This is where I want Rocket to be at the end. This is where I want Yondu to be at the beginning, and this is where I want all of everyone who watches this to suffer emotionally at the end. <laughs> this is where I want Drax to be. Like, he, he just kind of, I feel like there was, like, charts involved where he kind of looked at what everything was as a moving piece and just figured out what that had to be before he even wrote a word of the script, because this feels like something that has been refined over and over and over and over again until he's got the right mix of just what these characters are doing in the movie. I do want to point out, though, because this fascinates me, Star-Lord was totally going to destroy the universe until they found out that Ego killed his mom. And I think it's very important to never forget that in all of his <laughs> upcoming appearances. I'm going to throw this out. I don't think Star-Lord really understood what he was doing. His dad just said nice things and went, yeah, sure, whatever, daddy. Like, he could have told him something horrible. Peter's not been, very like, in, oh, Okay, in Peter Quill's defense, though, he's lived most of his life in space. He doesn't really have the same kind of emotional, like, he doesn't have the same values that we have because he had to live as a Ravager. He, he has space values. Do you know what space values are like? Yeah, survival uh, of the fittest. Worth nothing. Do you know what Yondu taught him? You know what he taught that Terran boy? You don't even want to know the first time Peter made love. Uh, it, was it was the taser face, wasn't it? Space love. It was to a nebulous gas cloud. <laughs> Feels like I'm fucking nothing at all. Nothing, <laughs> nothing at all. Nothing, nothing at, at all. all. It just turns into sweet back. <laughs> so before we move away too much from the differences between one and two, I, I do have one more comment I just want to throw in, then we can move on. I absolutely loved the kind of mission statement he presents the audience with in the credit scene, like the opening credit scene, because we have the giant battle, the epic battle in the background between the, the interdimensional space monster thing trying to eat the batteries. And instead of focusing on that, we spend the entire time listening to Yellow and watching Baby Group dance around and having his own personal intimate struggles. So the there's a giant gun thing in the world. <laughs> yeah, there's this giant space battle that we all kind of expect is the natural, you know, escalation from the first movie. He's like, yeah, that's there, whatever. We'll we'll kind of get pieces of that. But I'm more interested in just seeing Baby Groot walk around, try and eat bugs and fight rats, and dance to music he enjoys. And These that's people the existing. Group. Yeah, I want something emotional and small. And there's also just something beautiful about the fact that the movie begins with them fighting the giant monster. It's like a great James Bond kind of open. You know, you get like that big action moment that's not really connected all that much to the rest. We're in the third act of a normal Guardians movie, and then we just cut to this indie film, personality exploration film. <laughs> like, yeah. And what's also, funny about that is, like, it then contains, like, it slow builds into another ramp up that you don't expect, which is this this battle literally within the core of Ego for the soul of... Star-Lord, and the sword, the soul of the Guardians, really, because they're all... What I love about that third fight is that... Uh, third act fight, I should say, is that all of them are fighting for something, and they all have a stake in it. It's not just, oh, my teammates are in trouble. It's that, like, they each individually are, like, in their own little private mini-struggle. Like, 
Gamora's trying to save her sister because she's feeling bad about the fact that she abandoned Nebula to be tortured for all those years by Thanos. And meanwhile, you also have, like, Drax is running towards the ship trying to get Mantis to safety, and he's sinking, and and Star-Lord is fighting Ego and having all these, like, emotional attachments just to the fact that, you know, this is his dad, but now he has to fight him, and also he has superpowers, essentially. <laughs> Like, there are actual stakes in this third act. It is not a CGI robot battle. Thank God. I mean, it is giant CGI robots, but regardless. Uh, also, it's well done. The, the brilliance of making your villain a pure symbolic representation. Like, he's Ego. His character name is literally Ego. He represents Ego 100%, like the classical definition of Ego. So these characters are fighting a concept, more or less. So that metaphorical idea at the end, you know, what are they doing by taking a stand against ego? You're standing against everything ego is for, which is a brilliant way to talk about a team that's supposed to be defending the galaxy and being altruistic. And I also think it's it's brilliant in that choice to also have Kurt Russell just become less and less of a factor in the actual ego character because he visually stops being Kurt Russell, like, close to the end of the second act. Like, he just kind of goes through phases of being this pure energy being. Mm-hmm. And that that kind of adds to the idea that they're fighting more of a metaphor than a character because he's becoming less of a visual. He's becoming, like, more of a force that they have to actually fight because they're fighting on his turf. They're fighting on his terrain. He literally is a planet. So yeah. they, have to, they have to fight their surroundings and they have to fight this thing that is a manifestation of the surroundings. So it's like all these different things just coming together from... Like different, completely different sides of the equation. It's it's so multifaceted and surprisingly so. Yeah, and and on the flip side, you have the subvillain Taserface, who even refers to himself as being a metaphorical character, which is great because he's just such a small, worth nothing villain. And then you actually have like a metaphorical villain on the other side that's ego, or maybe the in between character of Aisha, who is just you know pure vanity and. Uh, kind of continues the trend from the first film where the villain is in a 100% different world than the rest of the characters. Like, they just don't see things the way everyone else in the world does. I want to see Aisha and Ronan interact. <laughs> they both have their own carpets that get dragged across the snow for them. <laughs> God, I cannot wait for Volume 3 for Aisha and Adam Warlock to have gold conversations in their palace. <laughs> Presumably out of a completely different dramatic set piece. There's probably going to be Shakespearean in some place, but then you just cut to rocket farting or something. <laughs> it was it was a little weird in this movie how it felt like the humor jumped a few steps down in places. Like it got more juvenile. I'm not complaining because I still laughed at dumb turd jokes. But it, it was kind of like, a, oh, that was unexpected. I was, I was just delighted by that kind of stuff because it... As with the first movie, my endless source of entertainment is in the knowledge that somewhere Captain America is doing something. (laughs) (laughs) And Spider-Man is doing something, and Daredevil exists. (laughs) Like, Jessica Jones exists in this universe. Like, you can literally point to, like, a thousand different characters, and it makes it more hilarious. Because it's like, wait, Iron Man is supposed to be in this? Like, Thor exists? Well, actually, I, Thor makes sense. Yeah. But it always it's always kind of delightful with the Guardians films to just see how much they can warp the Marvel tone. 
Because all of these movies, like, except for the Cap stuff, are action comedies. But it's fascinating to see something in that universe really lean into the comedy aspect, where it's not comedy relief, it's actual comedy with a capital C. Also, going off of bending the Marvel brand, God, and I just have to bring this up because I love the scene so much, I'm just enthralled. When they, they cut to Yandu and the Ravagers on a literal sex planet. Oh, yeah. That blew my <laughs> With mind. Noir Yandu oh, buckling God. his pants next to his robo-hooker. That I just how it all went wrong for him. That goddamn shot, just like, that alone was worth the price of admission. Like, the music going on, the weird robot hookers, Yandu wistfully looking out with regret. And the <laughs> scene alone. No exactly, exactly, like... belt. A scene later, Sylvester Stallone shows up and, and dresses him down for fa- for failing the Ravagers. God damn, that scene was so amazing. Like, I want a movie of just that. Like, the Ravagers. Like, I want Yondu to get, like, a weird prequel spinoff where it's just that shit. They don't even try and save the galaxy. It's just them doing a small heist and having weird emotional pet peeves. So, Do you agree that, as Starhawk, Stallone was channeling Judge Dredd? <laughs> Oh, definitely. Kind of the way he was shouting. He was full on, you betrayed the law! Yeah, he was. He totally was. (laughs) It was very, it was very 90s Stallone. I I feel like Gunn did all of that very specifically. Oh god, if we do see the Ravagers in a prequel, can Starhawk be played by Carl Urban? So yeah, I'm sorry, Andy, I cut you off. We were going to go into something right before I mentioned that scene, but goddamn, that I love that scene so much. Well, that actually kind of works into a setup to what I was going to say, because I was going to tag up on what we were talking about with the comedy and just bring up the fact that, I'm sorry, hands down, the funniest part of this movie is Dave Bautista. His every Man. single line. I've never seen someone take a film and just steal it and run that far with it, because Drax is the best thing in this movie. It's amazing well, to watch the evolution of uh, Batista. Like, in the first Guardians, he's a little rough in spots, but his character's so out there and he's so committed to the stuff, his charisma carries him through. In this movie, he's made such large leaps and bound improvements in his acting skills that he was just fun to watch. And I and think it actually made up for some of the lacks of what his character is up to. Like, he, he has some scenes with Mantis, and that's basically it. Besides that, he's just there to be funny. And goddamn, is he funny. He has the role that we all assumed Baby Groot would have. Right. Yeah. Well, I think that one of the big differences as far as the writing and uh, directing goes is it wasn't until halfway through shooting the original that Gunn realized that Dave Batista laughing is the funniest thing in the world. This was scripted with Dave Batista laughing in every scene in mind. <laughs> I think that made a significant difference. It also had uh, just the beautiful contrast, too, when he does have his dark moments. Because this is a character who kind of plays it by sleep, it feels like. But then they have the touching moment where he's talking about his his past with Mantis. And just considering every other scene is him losing his fucking shit, laughing his ass off. It's such a stark contrast. You really buy into the emotional stakes that he's setting up in this conversation. It's it's really strange that I care deeply about Drax the Destroyer. (laughs) (laughs) Like, on the ride home, I half-jokingly thought to myself, God, it's weird to think 10 years from now we'll probably be watching the Drax movie. And then I realized, no, you could actually do a Drax movie. You could. I think they set their game up. In the first movie, I would say most of the characters you could do spinoffs with. It would take a little bit of work at convincing, but you could do it. Maybe not Gamora, because I feel like they didn't have enough going with that character. But in this movie, even Gamora, I feel like now, 
has enough of a personality built in where I would be interested to see what she's up to on her own adventure. Everyone has their own supporting cast now. <laughs> I feel like Gamora, if you did a Gamora movie, it would you could almost just do a team movie where it's just Agents of Thanos, essentially, where you have like all these like essentially like if you took all the bad guys bounty hunters that Darth Vader was going to have hunt down Han Solo in the Millennium Falcon, but just do that as a movie with Gamora as the lead, like, and have it be a prequel. I think that could actually kind of work. I'd watch that. You could do a movie that's just Rocket and Kraglin assembling a new team of Ravagers. Isn't it amazing that Kraglin is now, like, a fully-fledged, interesting character I don't mind seeing? Who would have thought? Out of nowhere. He had one line in the original, like, Captain's gonna teach stuff, and now he's, like, a real character I care about. Here's the thing. I hope, against hope, that the setup for Volume 3 is Kraglin paints himself blue and becomes the new Yondu, who's just comic book Yondu with his bow and arrow. (laughs) He was mastering that then. It could happen. It could happen. I just know James Gunn would be all for making his brother wax his chest and painting him blue. I think he just does that on the weekends. That's just a fun thing to do. But yeah, he, it's so weird, like, Craglin. Craglin's like the new secret sauce for this movie. They introduce a ton of characters, all of a sudden it's just like, Craglin gets a ton of shit to do at the end. Why not? That's cool. I loved it. And, uh, and because it's a James Gunn movie, Craglin is treated like he's Nick Fury or something. Like, he is the most, he is just as important as all of these other characters. <laughs> Which makes sense, because, I mean, a lot of movies recognize, like, okay, these are the five characters of the lines, they're important, everyone else is a red shirt. And this one, it does reach out and say, hey, you know, even though he's not one of our main dudes, he's not a guardian of the galaxy, he's still an actual, you know, in-universe, he's a character, he's a real human being, just like everyone else. He has feelings and motivations, blah, 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 blah. We should probably treat him with slightly more respect. I think once you open the door of having a dramatic really soul-searching and mournful character arc for a character like Yondu, you can pretty much do anything with any character in that movie because you open the bridge. You actually, like, build something to where it's sustainable to focus on, like, lesser characters. Like, even Mantis, I feel like, is just... Yeah, she's the kind of... From the outset, you would think, okay, well, we have to add a new member of the team because that's just what you do in escalating sequels. That's just what you do, like, in your X-Men 2 and all that. Like, you have to add more recognizable members of the cast. Mantis fills a specific role, but she also just exceeds that while being her own kind of thing and being her own kind of character, which is, I I found interesting because her power set is actually kind of perfect when matched up with the Guardians, because the Guardians are so about just keeping everything close to the chest. They're just emotional reserves, just kind of banded together, and she just touches them, and all of a sudden she could just tell everyone what anyone is thinking at any time. Well, it was great, just on a practical level, to see a superpower in one of these movies that isn't combat-based and actually yeah. furthers the character dynamic and not the action. It's not shooting then, laser beams or anything. And then becomes combat-based in the least predictable way imaginable. Like, go to sleep is one of the most dramatic line readings in this movie. Also, a brilliant way to solve the problem of too much shit happening at one time. Because during the entire time where she's crouched down, you don't have to have anything going on with Ego. You can focus exclusively on, like, the Aisha shit that's happening. 
Also, Aisha has her own arcade system of machines. <laughs> like she, she has a VR cycle. The slow dawn of oh, Gun is doing arcade machines, <laughs> and that scene was fucking brilliant. How amazing is it that this film has three villains? It actually it, feels balanced. It doesn't feel like oh, okay, God, we're cramming Sandman in here too. Yeah, this hasn't been a thing with me for years. There is no rule saying that superhero movies fall apart if you have two or more villains. Yeah. The thing is, you can't treat every villain like they're the main villain. Yeah, it's I mean, it's the Dark Knight. You can make all sorts of villains work. They just have to have their own roles, and you need to actually make sure they fit into the story properly. I would say an even better example of what James is talking about is Dick Tracy. Dick Tracy is the perfect, like, that's the archetype of what I want to see them do with one of these movies. It's just essentially have an entire rogues gallery in the movie, but have them fill oh, a specific yeah. purpose. Oh, yeah. Yeah, my, my go-to is always Die Hard. If you really watch that movie, there's like eight villains in that thing, but there's only one Hans Gruber. Well, that and all the red tape. I mean, both of those are just outstanding, gigantic villains. <laughs> Damn you, bureaucracies. And protocol. She just end there. <laughs> just end. No, wow. no. Was, did you write that down? How did you just pull that off of your head? I, I I don't know. The worst part was I wasn't even thinking about the joke I was making. I just wanted to try and find some way to wrap up that conversation so we could talk about my favorite part of the film, and that is Wicker. <laughs> okay, was anyone going into this expecting this to be the Yondu movie? Oh, god damn, no. Well, what's funny is, like, James Gunn fully prepared us for the fact that it was going to be because he said, like, this is going to be Michael Rooker's finest hour. Multiple times during the production, during the promotion, during everything. He was like, this is going to be where Rooker shines. Rooker just becomes the, the benchmark for drama in this. He's just, he's the serious part of the movie. Yeah, he's so good. And so many times you watch a movie with a really great character actor that's underused, and you just think, like, man... Why are they only giving this guy, like, two minutes of time and these shitty lines? Like, this guy has the skills. Just let him fucking chew the scenes. Or, like, give him some real lines or a real character. And in the first movie, I love Yondu's character, but he's just a character in it. You know, he's entertaining to watch, but that's it. He's entertaining in a movie full of entertaining characters. Plus, he just kind of fills the Michael Rooker role. Which, yeah. Which is an archetype of itself, because, like, this is more like whenever you see John Goodman be able to really really tear it up and really this go is, to town. Like, yeah, this, this is like is the his, 10 Cloverfield Lane guy. Yeah, this is his 10 Cloverfield Lane. This is his, like, uh, Oh Brother, We're Art Bow or Big Lebowski moment. Like, yeah. this is Rooker's just, his moment. This his is when, he just, when you, you take great character actors and you say, let's give this guy material. Let's not he, force him to do everything on his own. Let's actually help him out and prop him up and just, god damn, he takes the reins of that movie and he fucking drives it all the way. And he is Mary Poppins, y'all. Oh, God. <laughs> Who would ever expect that would be the line that would just win over everyone's hearts? It is his delight, as he says it. And it's the closest we get to Peter Quill saying, I love you, back to his adopted father. Like, I know. Oh, yeah, it's the look cool. on his face, that delivery. It's so good. And the pose. I mean, let's face it. Like, there are a lot of moving things that make that just the best meme that's ever come out of this year so far. <laughs> I also love that he lands. And they do, like, the Avengers sweep around the team at that point. <laughs> and you see the shit-eating grin on Yandu's face as everything blows up like he thinks he personally did it. 
even though it was Gamora or uh, it was Nebula who like used her arm battery power to power the machine so it could blow everyone up. Michael Rooker basically like made the spaceship spin around in a circle, and he's like, "I did it, y'all! Look at me." There's something so magical about seeing the Avengers pan around for the Guardians. And not, <laughs> and not only that, but like we went into like I feel like all everyone who went into this movie basically thought, okay, Rooker's gonna come in, like Yondu's gonna come in, and he's gonna become like the new permanent member of the team, and he's gonna be oh, yeah. in Avengers Infinity War, and like he's gonna be like just in future installments because he and Nebula are just permanent fixtures now. That's not what happens at all. He gets, like, maybe five seconds of time as an actual member of the Guardians of the Galaxy, and then dies historic. Well, it's like Rocket makes him a member of the team to essentially honor him before his death. And that death is so great because there's no hinting at it throughout the film. You don't really feel like that's what's coming for Yondu. So when the death actually happens, it really feels like this this wasn't how his character arc was necessarily supposed to go, but it's the right way for it to go. Well, that's actually what Gunn said in an interview, is that the entire time he was writing the script, he was like, I was just resisting the urge so badly because it was calling to me. I knew it had to happen, but I wanted to put it off because I can't do that to Rooker. Because, I mean, uh, it's James Gunn and Michael Rooker. They're practically brothers. Yeah, but it's, it's going to suck in three when we don't have Yondu as a main character. Unless we get him as a ghost. But man, uh, uh, it, it, the ending with Yandu's death ties everything together so perfectly, and it really finishes out the Rocket Raccoon stuff. And goddamn, I actually think like they had a better grasp on the story when it came to dealing with Rocket's emotional issues and baggage than they did even with uh, Peter and his father. Like that introspective part where Rocket Raccoon realizes being an asshole because he's called out by Yandu, and he's kind of forced to really address what his issue is. Just, it works so well. And at the end, when all the Ravagers show up, and I mean, sure, it might be a little cheesy, but, you know, he has that moment with Star-Lord where he mentions, like, of course they came back. Ah, oh, God, it's a tearjerker. It's not cheesy. It is beautiful. Everything it about really that, beautiful. Every, everything about those last 15 minutes are, like, like, even beyond the MCU, even beyond superhero movies, it's just some of the most amazingly well-done send-off pieces to a character I think I've seen in a long time. I just want to point out, Yondu has a better send off than Han Solo. <laughs> it's true. It's, uh, but going back, I think that that's a perfect example of what I was talking about earlier with the the idea of Act One in these stories being set up and Act Two being exploration. The original fully sets up. Okay, this is Rocket. This is what a piece of shit he is and how crazy he is. And this movie is just an exploration of, okay, if you were a rocket and were that crazy, how badly would that destroy everything around you? And I love that they're not afraid to do that, because it could have been very easy to just have Rocket be a crazy asshole, and that's funny, and that's it. Yeah, never address it. Never go into why he's a crazy asshole. Yeah, They never go into the sitcom pitfall of, just characters being horrible and insane for no reason because it's funny. And he's that's just, he's, just wacky. he's he's called out in the first act by Peter. Like he's he's called out not only the first time, but then later on, like a scene later where it's doubled down on him. Like, oh, he's actually serious. He's he's it's not just them two bickering, it's it's Peter recognizing that Rocket is insanely destructive and 
is the entire reason that any of this is going down and all of this went horrible. I would also and Rocket like realizes to say that too. Anytime they they have Michael Rooker do yell acting, <laughs> it's like he's yelling directly at my soul. <laughs> like in both movies, like in the first one, where he was like, it's in here, it's in here, and he's just grabbing Star Lord and just smacking his chest. It's like, oh shit, oh god, I better pay attention. In this movie, where he's having like the yell acting bit, where he's talking to Rocket, Rocket Raccoon, he's basically saying like, hey, I know you're a piece of shit, because I'm a piece of shit. It's like, oh damn it, I feel like he's telling me I'm a piece of shit, because he's a piece of shit. He's probably right. Yeah. And what I liked about the resolution for Rocket, the resolution for a lot of the characters, it's it's very realistically done. It's not in a very movie where it's like, well, Rocket is going to forever not be an asshole anymore. Like, no, he. it's more of a personal understanding of, oh, that's why I do these things, and I have to remember that these people actually care about me. Like, none of them actually end up in a better place by the end. It was an interesting theme Playing into the ego thing and all, and all that interesting theme to see in a um, you know, a sci-fi blockbuster superhero movie, which is more of a theme of why are you what you are, yeah, and realize exactly what you are to learn from it. You don't necessarily need to change; just figure out what you've done, and then what's actually around you all, all because you know what's around you. Like you've seen the guardians in the first movie and even the beginning of this movie call themselves family. But what are you actually appreciating that fact? Or are you just saying it? And even with the Yondu being Peter's father, there's a sense in the first movie that Peter kind of understands that Yondu is technically his father. Like it's just something you get in the first film. I remember thinking that after watching it, but it's not until here that Peter actually has it click form to the point where he appreciates it and understands it and realizes he actually doesn't need to search for other things. Everything's here. He doesn't need to try to be something else. I think also that kind of touches on something that I have a problem with and oddly enough, going into third superhero movies, which is they always feel like, like whenever you get to a second installment of like a Spider-Man film or a Batman movie, there's always the exploration that's starting to go into why something is like James said, like that's the whole thesis of what a second movie, a good second movie is supposed to be. But a third movie should be the resolution of that and sort of the coming to terms with that portion. And that's when I don't feel like Spider-Man three or the dark Knight rises or any of these movies that go on to do terribly really do because they don't take any of the lessons that the other movie had and apply them. They just do their own thing, and it becomes this completely alienated thing that has almost nothing to do with the other two installments. That's why the third movie, Curse, is so prevalent in the DNA of those movies, because they just go off script. It's like, Sp you have to think of it as one continuous script. You can't think of it as yeah. three scripts. Well, Rises and Spider-Man 3 in particular go out of their way to defy things <laughs> In yeah. the previous films. Like, Spider-Man 3 is all about Peter learning nothing from the past two Spider-Man movies. Well, it's just, a bad third movie is all about deconstructing the myth of the first movie and ignoring the second movie. Exactly. I also, I also feel like that's a big failing of both Iron Man 3 and X-Men The Last Stand, which is they don't really, like, and less with Iron Man 3 because Iron Man 2 has nothing to really add, but... Iron Man 3 just completely ignores anything with Iron Man that Tony's learned, and that's kind of what the problem has been with Tony ever since. And that's why he's kind of a deeply 
deeply flawed character now in the MCU. With Guardians 2, though, that, that's my whole point in bringing up the third movie thing is that that is done in this movie to a full tilt. Like, they do the beginning of that resolution that Mike was talking about, and then they actually pay it off. And you don't actually see that in a lot of second movies, because sometimes they leave that as a cliffhanger. Sometimes they leave it as something that is the beginning of a larger journey that never gets paid off. Like, the only time I can think of it being paid off is Captain America Civil War. But with Guardians 2, this is like, okay, these are three movies, but it's it's in two of them. Like, you get enough story to fit three movies, but they're two movies. Which was makes the idea of a third one almost worrying, but at the same time very interesting, because it's almost like they have new fertile ground to cover. Well, they've got the same talent coming back, so that's very exciting. I like that continuity, and there's not going to be the back and forth of will they, won't they. Yeah. Plus, they do have some setups with setups with uh, Aisha and Adam Warlock, so they do have some through lines they can carry through on. And the interesting thing is that because of the things Gunn has decided to do with the characters in this film, this film essentially has the structure of that indie film where everyone has a weird, wild weekend, and at the end they become whole. <laughs> oh my god, it's flirting with disaster in the face. <laughs> this, now I think about this is a fucking David O. Russell movie, isn't it? Yep. And now that those characters are whole, it's Guns essentially had the characters earn truly being the Guardians of the Galaxy, yeah. both for Infinity War and what Volume 3 will be. And I think that was an interesting way to take the second film, which is we're not going to do the Guardians battling another villain or something like that. We're just going to put them, put these characters through a personal crucible. And those character quirks and defects we introduced in the first film, they're going to work that shit out here in the second film. And then they're going to be ready to actually do that plot you want to see them do. I think that's a, that's a really interesting idea because... At the end of Age of Ultron, the Avengers haven't earned Infinity War, but at the end of Civil War, they have. Yeah. I mean, and another thing just with that is that Infinity War is apparently going to feature the Guardians many years down the line from Volume 2, which kind of tags up on the idea that Gru has become a teenager at this point, which is the uh, one of the five scenes uh, in the post-credits. And I actually think that's a brave move because you can take these characters and say, okay, what what are they like in the future now? I do love how they're the one characters you can do a time jump with because we don't know when the hell this is. We kind of do. Um, they introduce the the first thing in this movie says it happens in 1980, and then in the very opening with the Guardians it says it happens 34 years later. The Guardians takes place the year it comes out, and this takes place like what six months later, three months later, pretty much, yeah. Which is an interesting change of pace from the other Marvel movies, which more or less take place in real time. Yeah, it's been very interesting. Which is also, yeah, interesting because a couple of years go by between year, you know, films just for production schedules. There is no time and space. It's like <laughs> now they're kind of breaking the mold with that between Guardian and Spider-Man. So one one other thing we definitely have to touch on because I think this is what got everyone excited for a sequel in the first place: Awesome Mix Volume Two. <laughs> Do you agree that the music is somehow better used in this movie than it oh, was in the original? Oh, much. It's 100 how it's used. And I, I love the callbacks, because in the first movie, they tried to get through the soundtrack. And, you know, a lot of times, I don't I don't know, did we ever revisit a song after it was played in the first movie? I don't 
think so. I think I think there was one. Like I, I believe the song that was played in the beginning that Peter's listening to as a kid plays again whenever like he sees the vision of his mother. Okay, that makes sense. But in this one, there's a couple of times where you get calls back, callbacks to songs, and it works so well. Like I hands down think this is the best use of Fleetwood Mac in cinema history. <laughs> the chain coming back to play. Right as Peter kind of like figures what the fuck he's going on with his family and the his chain wife being, the chain being used as a fucking dramatic moment is fucking mess. And I mean, Gun is pretty on the nose for the the thematic weight of the song being pretty much equal to what's happening in the movie. But I'm not mad about that because it still isn't as bad as just saying what you want to say. You have to at least pay attention to the song and the lyrics to get the meaning. And with the chain, it's that perfect idea, like, if you don't love me now, you'll never love me again. You can never break the chain. And that idea that Peter's love has been betrayed by his father, he's essentially broken the chain. It's very literal <laughs> reading of the song, but it works so goddamn well, because it informs you 100% of the emotions that are running through these characters as soon as it hits. Also, we would be remiss if we did not acknowledge that Kurt Russell said aloud the lyrics to Brandy in space. And explain the meaning of the song. Yeah. <laughs> the most beautiful song ever written by humans. Not to step away from the soundtrack for too long. How fucking amazing is Russell? This the way he has lines oh, when he's reading the, the, the Brandy stuff. Like, goddamn, that's gotta be hard. Oh, yeah. This, this might be a better performance than Hateful Eight. I, I just find Russell's performance amazing because he's finally done something he's never done before. He has made a character... I don't actually like. <laughs> that is impressive. <laughs> like even even in the fucking in death. Uh, hey, uh, no 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 the uh, no, uh, death the proof. Death, oh death proof. Death proof. I was gonna say death wish. Death proof. Like even his character who there is pathetic and slimy and weird and a serial killer. You still go well. It's Kurt Russell. He's fun. We all love stuntman Mike. We all love stuntman Mike. We can't help it. We get mad at the end when he gets his face stomped. Whereas in this movie, it's like, no, Peter should have blasted his fucking face off. What a dick. Oh, Mike, can you imagine if the villain for Guardians 3 is Tom Hanks? My God. And Tom you... Hanks as Jason. <laughs> I can see that, actually. It's the only way I think Gunn would actually be able to do that character and not feel weird. Because he hates Jason. If it, more than anybody else, James Gunn hates Jason so much. I, I will always love that immediately following the release of Guardians, James Gunn released a press release saying, don't worry, his dad isn't Jason. <laughs> I just want to say, you all are being very nice with the pronunciation of that character's name. It's not actually that cool. It's literally Jason. Ugh, dumb. Also, we were all wrong. We were, about yeah. Star-Lord's dad. It was not uh, Star Fox. It was not, yeah. God damn. It made sense to me. <laughs> now I'm just imagining, though, Tom Hanks playing Adam Warlock. <laughs> I could Tom see that. Tom would do that. Tom Hanks with his billowing hair. And he's ripped. Tom Hanks. Just glowing. That is funny to think. I'm 100% certain Adam Warlock will be stunt casted. Oh, definitely. Okay, okay, this is our this is our new Pete, Pete's dad. <laughs> Who do you think is going to be Adam Warlock? Okay, okay. Colin Hanks. I'm going to put that out there. I think he's going to go for something. I think the universe has heard us, and James Gunn is going to be influenced to the point where he's going to cast Colin Hanks as Adam Warlock. That's a really interesting choice. 
Okay, here's my suggestion because he's worked with Gunn before. Kevin Bacon. Because imagine the joke of that for the third movie. Okay, here. Okay, before I say mine, I want to say James is right. <laughs> That's gonna happen. Gun cannot resist them battling Footloose. Simon Pegg. Ooh, that'd be interesting. Just um, a picture of beautiful gold Simon Pegg with hair floating Simon, in space. Simon Pegg. I'm amazed Pegg has not been a member of the MCU before. I'm, I feel like shocking. he'd be knocking on their door. Uh, or Nick Frost, you know, either of those guys. Like, I feel like they'd be just begging to get into one of those movies. Um, maybe Edgar door. Wright said they couldn't. <laughs> oh, because the Ant-Man thing. Oh, <laughs> uh, you. You want to betray oh. Can you imagine if Simon Pegg was J. Jonah Jameson? <laughs> like, that's who they cast <laughs> as the follow-up to J.K. Simmons. It's just okay. Simon Pegg yelling oh. at Peter Parker's face. That would be the only way that'd be acceptable to recast. And ripped Pegg, too. Uh, God, and he's still pick. ginger. Like they don't give him a wig or anything. No. <laughs> All right, I gotta pick somebody. Um, oh boy. Uh, uh, this is way out left field, you guys, but Freddie Prince Jr. <laughs> I feel like Freddie Prince Jr. is gonna end up in one of these movies eventually. Yeah, and there's the weird, the, the weird tangential Scooby Doo connection to James Gunn. Like I feel like they have to kind of know each other at this point in their lives. I think so. I feel like. Freddie Prince Jr. would have gone out of his way to meet James Gunn at some point because of Scooby-Doo. Well, Freddie Prince Jr. is on Disney's retainer now because he's a member of the Star Wars canon. So he, there's a connection. Like, you can you can kind of make connections to where that's kind of likely to happen. Okay, speaking of Scooby-Doo and that connection, I'm calling it now. Volume 3 will feature Matthew Lillard as Terax. <laughs> <laughs> Look, Lillard's going to get a career bump. He was, uh, he is, I should say, a, one of the recurring characters in the new Twin Peaks. And he actually gets stuff to do in there that's, like, real acting. Which is always weird. The only thing is, if Matthew Lillard plays Terax, he doesn't get to be my pick for him in the MCU, which is, I want him to play the Scorpion. Ooh. <laughs> that is part of that. Just imagine him in an Just imagine him in an Scorpion. Just imagine him in an exosuit battling Tom Holland. Oh, we're talking exosuit? I was thinking, like, the original green, like... <laughs> oh, he's just, like, painted green? Yeah, not like, not like the robo-scorpion costume, like the original 1916 scorpion, like, where he's just, like, in a green bodysuit with a giant tail. So he has the backpack. Ah. <laughs> Stop calling me names, Jameson! <laughs> calling me names! I'm dead set for Lillard to become the scorpion now. That's just... Until you said it, it never occurred... No, he's, he's Gargan. Can you imagine? Jonah just pulls out a gun and shoots him. Scorpion just <laughs> on the ground. Oh, jeez. Oh, God. <laughs> Venom's gonna be so mad at me. <laughs> and, it's, and it's Tom Hardy, so that's really terrifying. <laughs> no, I just realized that if Matt Lillard were to join the MCU, so then that's Matt Lillard in the MCU. That's Seth Green in the MCU. That means... Dak Shepard would have to join the MCU, so you have the full cast of Without a Paddle. <laughs> now, do we no. want to go down this route? No. Dak Shepard would be Nova. <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> Can you imagine that? Marvel, please send your bank loads of money to box office pulp care of Cody Elf at... We're doing the work for you, Marvel. At this point, I, hey, 
If you give me a call, I'm sure I could recommend a few people Killian Murphy should play. You know, you know what? You know what? Instead of sending it to uh, our PO box, send it to box office pulp dot twitter dot or twitter dot com slash box office pulp, <laughs> and remember to follow us on Facebook at box office pulp promotion. Facebook.com slash box office pulp podcast. We're on Twitter at box office pulp. We can also find us on. Oh wait, that's not till later. I'm sorry. I was gonna say we just got jettisoned into the ending. Do we have anything else we want to cover here? Or are we done? I, well, I, I have one thing to add. Okay, throw that out quick because the ending's closing. <laughs> Oh, Push like it back! New haunted house. Get it with fire. <laughs> you want the threshold silly... bearing down, guys. Got to hurry. If you're determined to have Cillian Murphy in these movies, Uatu the Watcher, because apparently that can happen now. Okay, that, that could be a thing. That that is something I legitimately want to talk about because I feel like we all have the same reaction. Why was there a 100% comic book accurate U- set of Watchers in the movie? And is Stanley Tankley one of them, or he's just recounting his tales to the Watchers? Remember, he's the FedEx guy from the end of Civil War because Gunn wanted continuity. <laughs> I should Somehow say, he ended up in space. The best Stanley cameo ever. Oh, nothing will ever beat it. Nothing <laughs> will ever beat this. And the shock, I just, how did they get the rights to the Watchers? Well, they, it's, um, Feige explained it. They don't have the rights to Watu, but the Watchers as a concept is shared between Fox and Marvel. <laughs> That's stupid. That's it really weird stupid. stupid, yeah. But it it's, works. It's kind of like, like how they don't have the Super Scroll, but they have the Scrolls. Yeah. What? That's <laughs> like saying, we don't have Kang, but we have Immortus. <laughs> <laughs> What is the point? That's like if DC said, we don't have Hawkman, but we have the Thanagarians. <laughs> and Hawk Girl. So, who cares? <laughs> but I did not expect them to just look like the Watchers. That was right? that was one of the most... I'm not even exaggerating when I say it, That is one of the most surreal moments of my life. CGI, comic-accurate Watchers. Photorealist. With so, their blue capes. With with the MCU, we've all accepted at this point they're going to be inspired by the comics, but it's very rare we're going to get the actual comics translated on screen. To get the real deal randomly in like a weird cameo, it's like, what the fuck just happened? <laughs> that was my reaction in the first movie when the Celestials showed up. Yeah. Like, well, we're going into Jack Kirby country. <laughs> we are just in Jack Kirby and Jim Starlin's brains right now. I can only imagine how weird it's going to be when Thanos is badassing around in Infinity War. Yeah. <laughs> like, when you think about it, Uatu the Watcher and Cosmo the Space Dog are, like, the two most visually perfect translations in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And Howard the Duck. And Howard the Duck. Howard coming back was amazing. <laughs> what a weird tease. I just like how, yeah, Howard's, that, that, that's, can't, like, it's not, a, not an after credit scene now. Howard's out there, voiced by Seth Green. Seth Green is officially Howard the Duck. <laughs> and one day he will land on Earth and become a private eye. Don't forget that Wonder Man is also technically canon, even though he's removed from the film. I, st- I still want Nathan Fillion to come back and become Simon Williams, a.k.a. Wonder Man. I like how Gunn went out of his way to go, no, it is canon. That Nathan Fillion is Simon Williams, and we will find a place to put him in so he is further enscotched into canon. I think that's the deal. If you make Marvel eight hundred million dollars two times, you get to you get to put Nathan Fillion in whatever role you want. And here's Wonder the Man, the Netflix series. <laughs> <laughs> 
And here's the thing, because nobody likes Wonder Man, Nathan Fillion is perfect because Nathan Fillion is likable. Look, I want Wonder Man to do the only thing Wonder Man should ever do. Be introduced and immediately have his mind trapped in the brain of the vision. Oh! <laughs> <laughs> I love the synchronized screen movies with you guys so much. I want the show to end right on there. We've been friends for a very long time. We've realized this. If you notice, that's kind of a running gag. Anytime I hear synchronized screaming, I just think, like, yep, that's the end of the show. Everything else after that can just be lopped off. We do end the show very often after synchronized screaming. Oh, we got a movie sign. Oh. Yeah, Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2, Box Office Pulp, recommends it. Box One of Marvel's pulp. best, and that's saying something. I agree wholeheartedly. Box Office Pulp wants to know if anybody else was sexually aroused by the appearance of the Watchers. Box Office Pulp is a bit of a cosmic exhibitionist. Box Office Pulp. Box Office Pulp wants to dip their heads in oil and rub them all over his body. <laughs> Box Office Pulp is right. <laughs> There's your deep cut, everybody. Go home. <laughs> And like that, he's gone. Also, I just, since you brought it up, I just want to say, what an amazing comedy joke the fucking ripeness thing was. It was like <laughs> the, vaudeville comedy. And I just, that, that's like what I was saying earlier. I love how Guardians is the one movie in the Marvel Universe that has comedy comedy. You get a little bit in Ant-Man. You do. You actually get a lot in Ant-Man. Ant-Man tried to be funnier. I mean, and comedy. I would say it mostly worked. Ant-Man's pretty funny. But yeah. you don't have Karen Gillan's deadpan delivery. As a cyborg lady. <laughs> See, God, Karen say, Gillan was so good in this. Yes, I was kind of iffy under Nebula in the first movie, but in this movie it removed all doubts. Whenever I see her not being in Doctor Who, I kind of get a, eh, alright, let's see what happens here. This just bowled me over, like she was wonderful in the role. I was amazed that I actually really care about Nebula now. Right? Oh my god, how did they manage to find a way to make me give it a shit about Nebula? <laughs> I just love how this retroactively makes Guardians a better movie. Oh yeah. Considering all you know about Nebula and Yondu, especially with Yondu stuff, like, there was an entire storyline going on in in between scenes of the first movie that you weren't even aware of. I was rewatching uh, the first one just a couple days ago, and actually knowing the Nebula stuff, like how it out shook out in volume two. It's definitely in Gunn's head when he was writing uh, the first one. Yeah, it feels like all of this was in his head. It wasn't like he just like with Christopher Nolan. I feel like every time he did a Batman movie, he's like, well, shit, there went all my ideas. Time to start over. Whereas with Gunn, it feels like he actually has several movies planned out. And if he gets to him, cool, he'll explore them. My whole thing is just, I I feel like the first one is enriched by the fact that Sylvester Stallone is out there as one of the original Guardians. <laughs> and a robotic head, as, as voiced that Miley. person for some reason. Yeah. Why Miley Cyrus? Does he know her personally? Miley Cyrus had, like, what, one line in the movie? It's really weird. I mean, I, I mean I'm mean, i still confused. Why was uh, Michael Rosenbaum the Night, ki- the Night King? Right? <laughs> And also, only get one line. Like, he's silent throughout the movie. And yeah. And and the fact that they wasted an after-credits scene on their group, like, are, are they trying to say that we'll eventually get a Ravager spinoff with Stallone, 
or is that just a weird like, hey, I've got these guys, I got to use them? Or in part three, I, I don't know. I don't know what I Gun's think, planning. I, mean, I, I think Gun just really wanted that scene. I mean, Ving Rhames. Yeah. yeah. There's some big names in there. It feels like too many big people are involved in that scene for it to not have an impact later on. But I don't know what they're going to do with it. Like, I can't see Marvel funding a Ravager spinoff movie. Well, the Ravagers have had a part in both of the, like, the first two movies. I imagine they'll still yeah. have a part. And well, those are the only real members of the Ravagers that we have now. That we... Right, yeah, they literally killed off all of Yondu's faction besides Craglin. Yeah. Also, uh... uh just so I understand this, I mean, they can hand wave it later. Is the Milano totally gone now? I guess so. I mean, they didn't destroy the original totally. Like, Rocket was fixing it. It's still on that plant. They could they go back it for it. Fix it. Yeah, but they also have, like, Yandu's warship. They could just drive around. Does that mean Craiglin's part of their crew now? Or is he going to go off and make his own spin? There are so many questions. i got to see three. Craiglin is their Caliban now. <laughs> I mean, there... I hope they keep him around and he's just, like, part of their crew, but he's not an official guardian. Craglin kills Thanos. <laughs> yeah, you joke. If Gunn was directing Infinity War, that's exactly what would be. We should all put bets on now who's going to kill Thanos. Oh, I dead seriously think that it's going to be Bucky fulfilling his destiny as the cosmic assassin. <laughs> I like how James is literally the only person who still loves that idea and won't let it go despite comics abandoning that several years ago. <laughs> Stupidly, I agree with James. How beautiful, how beautiful is that idea, though? Bucky has no place on Earth after he's alienated everyone. So he has to go to the stars, being the winter soldier of the cosmos. The man on the wall. That's, that's going to be the most interesting thing for me to keep track of, like, which guy actually gets the final blow. Because we're not going to have all of the Avengers go in and punch him at the same time. <laughs> that would be amazing. That would just it, all it just would be. fucking um, Ant-Man punch him. Right. <laughs> no, 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 no. Here's here's what I think. You're gonna have Infinity War, and like, like nobody's gonna really know any plot details until we finally go and see the movie. Mm-hmm. And then we go in to see the movie, and everything goes like how you would imagine it. Like every single member of the Avengers gets their moment to shine. Like Thanos gets a big moment and kind of usurps them. Captain America gets his big heroic speech. Like all this stuff comes to a head. Like Captain America and Iron Man's factions make up and and become the like true of Blue Avengers. And then a portal opens. And outstretched comes a rubber fist that no. punches Thanos across the face. Then you hear the words, it's clobbering time. Michael <laughs> Chiklis jumps in. <laughs> the OG version, too. And somehow, like, there's an alternate universe version of Chris Evans that comes in as, as just fully flamed on as Human Torch. Kate Mara is randomly Sue Storm, though. <laughs> like, without Adam Warlock in the mix, I just... I don't know, they're setting Nebula up to really want this, so maybe her? I, I mean, I feel like, no no joking, probably it's going to be Scarlet Witch taking control of the stones and using them to kill Thanos. Yeah. Or She's got the power. I don't know, I, to be honest, like, I felt like this movie was kind of setting up the idea that Nebula's actually going to carry out her promise of killing her father. She's oh, definitely so going to have a huge chance. chance. His revenge against Thanos. Well, eh. Drax may have forgotten by now. Yeah, yeah. I, I think Drax just kind of had his moment, and he was thrown into some sludge. I also feel like the Vision is kind of being set up a little bit to be our new Adam Warlock. A little bit. But I also feel like he's going to die in the first movie, so Thanos can get the first gem. So I don't see him getting the killing blow, considering I think he's going to be dead meat before that point. 
Well, that's oh, when so- you bring in the soul of Wonder Man to bring him back to life. Oh, God, that'd be amazing. Uh... I would. I honestly am going to be so bad if they decide to just officially kill off the Vision. Because he's a side character who's never going to have his own movie. But, man, I love having him around. Well, they can't kill off the Vision because they already killed off Jarvis. And <laughs> it'd be kind of cheap. I think that if... Vision dies from having the stone removed. It's only going to be a temporary thing. Very, yeah. Oh, yeah. They're, they're I think most of the deaths will just be unwritten at the end. He'll be dead for a majority of part two. I, I'm I'm dead certain somebody big's going to die for part two, though. I think they're going to kill him at the end of part one to get people interested in part two. Somebody's going to die somewhere. Yeah. You know, you know who should die? Spider-Man. Oh, yeah. <laughs> He's just fucking annihilated by the Infinity Gauntlet. Ah! Marvel just decides to kill Spider-Man because of so- all of Sony's bullshit movies. That'd be kind of funny. And then they buy Venom. You can't have Tom Hardy anymore. <laughs> you don't deserve nice things. This is Box Office Pulp Guy, and this has been a Pulp Podcast production. Now please, 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 put a gun in my mouth and pull the trigger and say goodnight. And now, on with the show. This meeting will come to order. The Legion of Pulp is now in session. In a moment, iTunes... Yes, Quizmotron. I was wondering, Emperor Palpatine, if I could, perhaps... Box Office Pulp thinks we need a few items to pawn on the black market. Box office pulp guy, you have a podcast dedicated to movie analysis. Pinhead, your pleasure puzzles are deadly. Isaac, you've... You've got corn! Corn? What more do you need? Elbows and nuclear warhead. What? All other supervillains have them. With a nuclear warhead, I shall leave all of the podcasts to tear themselves apart with paranoia. Box office pulp wants a magic lasso to hang himself with. Can I get a ship in a bottle kit? I demand more corn. To make my own ship in a bottle. Oh, enough of this. The hell do I look like, Santa Claus? We're wasting valuable time. Right now, my Pope drones are rewriting Apple's code to make our podcast number one on iTunes. Excuse me, Emperor. Quizmotron, what is it? All Quizmotron wants is pants. A decent pair of pants. Darth Vader wants pants, too. Order! Order! Tune in next week at popodcastnetwork.wordpress.com I don't even know how I deal with any of you on a daily basis.